Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. Frequently asked question. I ask you all to submit questions that you would like to have a sermon preached about. Uh, probably never going to ever do that again uh, uh, because you all really submitted some good questions. Uh, we dealt with three questions back in the spring. Is God real? Number one. Number two, is the God we worship, how do we know that the God we worship is the right one? And number three, what happens when we die? Uh, today is the final message in another three-part series from these questions, and we've dealt with uh, how can a perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful God ever really be sorry for anything? Uh, we dealt last week with the story of a man on a deserted island, uh, a desolate island, who only knew his family and friends on the island and was always a good man, believed in God, talked to God, but never heard about Jesus or the Bible. And I ask you the question, uh, when this man died, would he go to heaven? And... Uh, we conducted a poll before I preached the sermon, just after I gave you the question without preaching the sermon, and 166 people last week said he would go to heaven, and 56 people said that he would not go to heaven. 166 to 56. Just throw that out to you there. Uh, today we're going to look at the final question, and this is a really good one. A lady in our church submitted this question to me, and here the question is, is it wrong that you try to help your family and you feel that sometimes it is too much. Well, a lot of the time you feel like it's too much and it just drags you down and you feel guilty because you wish you could just move away. Does that make me a bad Christian for feeling that way because I'm tired, just wondering? That's a great question. I would guess that everybody in this room, you love your families. I mean, uh, there are very few of you that I don't, I don't know you by name, but I, I know most of you well enough that I know how you feel about your family, and I know that if something happened to a member of your family and you could help them, you would do backflips, uh, go backwards, blindfolded through a dozen hoops just to help a member of your family. I know that you would do that. But what happens when you have a certain member of your family whose default position is trouble. I mean, uh, they just seem to be drawn to trouble, or trouble seems to be drawn to them, and they're constantly looking to you for help, and you start out by helping them, uh, but you, you get to a point where you realize that you're not really helping that person in the way that you're trying to help them. What you're really doing ends up hurting them as opposed to helping them uh, what do you do in a case like that? Or let's say that it's not trouble that they're drawn to, but let's just say that you have a family member or maybe a close loved one who's a friend and they're constantly getting into some pretty tight places, whether it's financially or relationships or whatever. And the first person they turn to when they get into these tight places is, hey, you know who it is. It'd be you. They, they come to you and they need your help. And, and uh, you know, the first few times you try to help them. But what happens when that call for help becomes habitual, when it, when it comes, becomes chronic, what do you do then? Uh, and it just wears you out. What do you do in a case like that? You want to help your friend or your family member, but 
you've come to a point in your relationship where the way that you have normally been trying to help a person is not really helping either that person or you. So what do you do? Well, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Chapter 12 introduces us to the father of the Jewish faith. His name is Abraham. Uh, At the time that we are introduced to him in chapter 12, he still goes by the name Abram. But Abram and Abraham are two names for the same person, okay? So I want you to get that. We're talking about Abram, Abraham. We're talking about the same person, Abraham. And uh, in chapter 12, we're introduced to Abram and we're introduced to a family member of Abraham's. And that family member's name is Lot, And so we're going to zero in on the relationship between Abraham and his nephew Lot. And what you're going to notice here as we go through these scriptures, and I'll have them all on the slides for you to see as well as reading along with your Bibles. What you're going to see is that Abraham and Lot's relationship goes through three distinct stages. And if you've ever tried to help somebody in your family and it it turns into... Uh, a a chronic sense of them dependent upon you for your help, Uh, you probably will see yourself in one of these three stages in trying to help uh, this person or these people, okay? So let's look, first of all, at Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 5, and we see these verses. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abram, Abraham, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now, Abram lives in a city called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, we don't have a map up here, but if you, if you were looking at a map and you could see a map of the Middle East, imagine uh, the, the modern-day country of Iraq. Well, down in the southernmost tip of Iraq is where Ur of the Chaldees uh, was. That's where Abraham and his father Terah and his two brothers lived. That's where he met his wife Sarah. Later on, uh, Terah, Abram's father, along with Abraham, his wife Sarah, and their nephew Lot, they go from Ur of the Chaldees, northwesterly, all the way up to what is modern-day Syria, to a city called Haran, okay? That's what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 12. So, verse 4, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot, you see that? Lot went with him, that's his nephew, Now, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, up in northern Syria. Abram took Sarah, his wife, and he took Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to see the first stage in the relationship between Abraham and Lot. And it's simply this. I sum it up in this way. Abraham is taking Lot along. What you're going to find in chapter 12 is that everywhere Abraham goes, Lot goes. If Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees and goes up to Haran, Lot is with him. When Abraham leaves the city of Haran and comes down into Canaan, Lot is with him. When Abraham comes down into Canaan, which is, which is the place that the Lord said, I'm going to give you, they get there. God says, Abram, you're here. You've arrived. Uh, Lot is with him. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about Abraham is uh, when God first told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, and then when he later told him to leave the city of Haran, he says, I want you to leave and you will go to a place I'll show you. Now, I don't know how many of us would actually leave our carports with, with as few directions as that. 
uh, you know, we want a, a little more specific. But Abraham did. He left. When he gets to Canaan, God says, you've arrived. But things weren't exactly what Abram uh, expected. Number one, the Canaanites were in the land. That was not expected. Uh, Abraham did not expect the Canaanites to be there. I mean, that'd be kind of like coming to church and you've been coming to Palmetto Baptist Church for uh, uh, 30, 40, 50 years, sitting in the same place every Sunday, 30, 40, 50 years, and you get to your spot and somebody's sitting there. The Canaanites are in the land. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it'd kinda be kind of like back when the Braves were winning. Do y'all remember that? I'm trying to think of when they were winning. Back when the Braves were winning back in the 90s and John Smoltz and Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox were pitching and, and they make it to the playoffs and uh, 95, 96, they make it to the World Series and somebody gives you, somebody gives you two dugout level seats, second level right behind the Braves uh, dugout. They give you two dugout level seats and you get to the game just in time for the game to start and you make your way down to where the the second row is for your seats and you look down there and somebody's sitting in your seats. The Canaanites are in the land, you know what I'm talking about? You look at your ticket, you know those are your seats over there. So you turn, you call the usher, the usher comes down, calls those two people out, they show their tickets and lo and behold... They printed duplicate tickets. Those folks have tickets for the same seats you do, and they beat you there. The Canaanites are in the land, and you didn't expect them to be there? Not only that, not only were the Canaanites in the land, but Abraham gets to Canaan, and there is a famine in the land. Imagine that. You go to the ball game. It's it's World Series. Somebody is sitting in the seats. Second row dugout. Not only that, they tell you that there are no hot dogs and pizza at Turner Field that night. There's a famine in the land. So what do you do when you get to the place God wants you to be and the Canaanites are in the land and there's a famine in the land? Well, what, you, what we ought to do is trust God in the famine and trust God in the face of the Canaanites. But that is not what Abraham does. He says, forget that. I'm going to keep on going. They keep on going down to Egypt. And when they get down to Egypt... Lot is with Abraham. Abraham takes Lot everywhere he goes. We come back down to uh, chapter 11, verse 31 says, Terah, Abraham's father, took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. They went out together from Ur the Chaldees to enter the land of Canaan. They went up as far as Haran. They settled there. And then chapter 12, verse 5 says, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. But they kept on going from Canaan down into Egypt. Got in trouble in Egypt. We don't have time to go into all the trouble that Abram got into down there. But finally he decides, maybe I should have stayed in Canaan. And so he leaves Egypt and heads back up to Canaan. And that's in chapter uh, 13, verse 1 says this, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. The Negev was the southern part of Canaan. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and, highlight this, and Lot was with him. He's taken Lot along with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And look at verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So 
Picture this, stage one of the relationship between Abraham and Lot. Abraham is taking Lot along with him everywhere he goes, from Ur to Haran to Canaan to Egypt, back up to Canaan. Abraham is taking Lot along. But now we're about to come to the end of stage one, and we'll see a clear beginning to stage two. And stage two, I I, I sum it up like this. Abraham is caring for Lot from a distance, but intervening physically only when necessary. Now, up to this point in stage one, Lot has been with Abraham. They have been inseparable. And as a result of Lot being with Abraham, he enjoyed the fringe benefits of all the blessings God had poured out on Abraham. If if Abraham got rich, Lot got rich. If Abraham acquired uh, flocks of animals... Lot acquired flocks of animals. If Abraham had lots of servants, Lot acquired a lot of servants. So he's enjoying the blessings of being with Abraham. Abraham is taking him along. But all of a sudden, that is about to change, beginning with chapter 13, verse number 5. So let's read along. We'll see this second stage. Abraham's caring for Lot, not with him, but from a distance, intervening physically only when necessary. Verse 5, now Lot, who went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents, But the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great, they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. See, the Canaanites are still there. Can I give you just a side note? This really has nothing to do with the sermon except just as a side note. Can I give that to you? Here it is. Here it is. When you are in God's will, don't expect God's will to be problem-free. Because the Canaanites are going to be in your life when you're in the middle of God's will. Do not expect being in God's will to be trouble-free. If you expect that, you are in for a huge disappointment. Okay, that's just a sidebar. I'll give you that free, okay? The Canaanites and Perizzites dwelling in the land. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, here it comes, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. They were relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. Put some distance between you and me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Morah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go up to Zoar. And so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus, they separated from each other. You see the distance put between them? And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tents as far as Sodom. I love the way the King James Version says that. It says Lot pitched his tent in Sodom. Can I give you another side, side note? Are you ready for this? It matters where you pitch your tent. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and they were sinners against the Lord. They were sinners against the Lord. So 
They separate. Now there's distance. And Abraham's philosophy, his policy with Lot during this second stage is, I'm not going to take Lot along with me anymore, and I'm not going to accompany Lot anymore. I will intervene only when necessary. Now, necessity knocked on Abraham's door. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 14 that uh, an an alliance of, of kings went to war against the uh, nation where Lot lived, the king of Sodom, and they overtook the area that Lot was living in, and they captured all the inhabitants and took them away into captivity, including, are you with me? Including Lot and his wife and his family. Okay? So Lot and Abraham have separated. Lot's living in Sodom. He's pitched his tent in Sodom. Some enemy nations have come in, invaded Sodom, taken Lot into captivity. And look, beginning with verse 13 of uh, chapter 14, Genesis 14. A man who had escaped from the battle came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Ashkol and Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that this relative had been taken captive, his relative Lot. He called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and, are y'all with me? He brought back his relative Lot and his, position, his possessions together with the women and the other people. All right? So, here you see this second stage in the relationship between Abraham and Lot. It's, uh, they're living uh, separated from one another. Abraham cares for Lot from a distance, but his policy is, I will not physically intervene in Lot's life unless there is a necessity. And the necessity came when Lot... Lot's area was invaded, and Lot and his family were taken captive. That was the emergency that, that, that was uh, necessary, that made it necessary for Abram to go and physically intervene in Lot's behalf. All right? So two stages. Abraham takes Lot along. That's, that's stage one. And second stage, Abraham cares for Lot from a distance, intervenes only when necessary. Now, That stage will end and their relationship will go into a third stage. It's very important. And the third stage is this, that Abraham intercedes for Lot through prayer, but does not intervene physically at all. So he goes from taking him along with him everywhere to caring for him from a distance, intervening physically only when necessary, to only interceding with prayer, talking to God on Lot's behalf, but not physically intervening at all. Now, we will see this as we look uh, into uh, Genesis uh, chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, three men visit Abraham's tent. As it turns out, these what appears to be three men at first turns out to be one of them's God himself, And the other two are angels. They just look like men. So you have God and two angels. They come in Genesis 18 to tell Abraham that he and his wife Sarah, one year from that meeting, from that day, 
Abraham and Sarah will have a son who will be called Isaac. Now, keep this in mind, folks. Abraham is 99 years old when these three men, one being God and two being angels, visit him and Sarah. Abraham Abraham is 99 and uh, Sarah is 89. Hello? Yeah, that's right. So... When God tells Abraham, he says, uh, your wife Sarah, she's going to have a baby about a year from now. Sarah is still in the tent, but she is overhearing. She's listening in on the conversation, even though she's in the tent. And when God says, your, your wife Sarah is going to have a baby, Sarah chuckles. She laughs. Wouldn't you laugh? I mean, I laugh when I read it. She laughed, and God said to Abraham, why did she laugh? And Abraham, being the protective husband that a husband ought to be, he says, she didn't laugh. And God says, oh, yes, she did laugh. She did laugh. I would laugh too. Or either cry. I think I would cry. I'd either laugh or cry. I might laugh, and then I'd go to crying. I don't know. So after God delivers this message that they'll have a son, he turns And in Genesis chapter 18, beginning with verse 20, here's what what God says. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry. I think that's an amazing statement coming from the mouth of God. I'm going to go down there to see if what I've heard about them is true. This is God saying that. He says, I will go down and see if, if, if what they've done entirely according to this outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. And then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Now, Sodom is where Lot lives. All right? So what's Abraham going to do? Verse 23, watch this. Abraham came near and said, he's talking to God here, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Abraham is getting quite audacious with God here. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied. See, what he's doing here is, although this doesn't look like prayer, Abraham is praying to God. He is interceding with God on Lot's behalf. Now behold, I've ventured to speak to the Lord, he says, although I'm but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Abraham spoke to him again. Suppose there are 40 found there. And God said, I will not do it on account of 40. And then Abraham said, Lord, don't be angry with me. I'll speak. Suppose 30 righteous are all that are there. And the Lord said, I'll not do it if I find 30. And Abraham says, now behold, I've ventured to speak with the Lord. What about if 20 are there? And he said, I will not destroy it on the count of the 20. And he said, Lord, don't be angry with me. I'll speak just one more time. What about if there are only 10 righteous people there? Would you spare the city, if you find ten righteous people there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. Now, we later know that he didn't even find ten righteous people there. 
Abraham is assuming that Lot and his family are righteous. That's a big, big debate right there. Verse 38 says, 33, 33 says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Now watch this. When Lot and his family were invaded by an enemy nations and taken captive, that was a dangerous situation. Their lives were in jeopardy for sure. But the enemies didn't kill them, but it was dangerous. You want to know what is more dangerous? What was a more dangerous situation for Lot and his family? was when they were sitting in Sodom, the wicked city, and God had decided to judge and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a more dangerous situation. In the case of Lot being captured by enemies, Abraham gets up, gets 318 men he knew, and they went after them. He intervened physically on behalf of Lot. But now, God has revealed to Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom, Abraham knows it's going to happen, so what does he do? You'd think he might run ahead to Sodom and pull Lot out, try to, try to uh, let him know what's going to happen, but that's not what he does. Remember, he's in this third stage, and in this third stage, Abraham's policy is, I'm not going to intervene physically at all. I'm only going to pray. I'm going to intercede with God on Lot's behalf, and that's all he does. After he talks with God, he returns to his place. You see yourself in either one of those stages. You have a family member or a friend who is always either in trouble or in a tight place and always dependent on you for some kind of help and you help them uh, but you help them so many times and to a certain point where you're starting to do for them what they can do for themselves and it's not helping them and it's wearing you out. And so what you've done is you have helped them and helped them to the point where you crossed over a line from helping to enabling. Enabling. You see, enabling means offering help that perpetuates rather than solves a problem. It means that you are, you are doing things that, do, that don't actually stop the problem or help the person you're trying to help, but actually they, can, they, 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 grow, they make the dependence that this person has on you grow deeper. That's a problem. Sometimes we, if you want some examples of, of enabling, giving somebody money. We have people come in our church all the time, at least a couple of times a week, and during uh, the holidays, even more often, people come into our church and, and during the week, and they, they want either uh, they want money either for gas or for electricity or f- to pay a rent or because they're behind on their mortgage or they need some food or sometimes they need clothing. And we ha- we ask them a battery of questions. Some folks don't think we ought to ask them questions, but we ask them questions because we're trying to discern whether these people truly need what they're asking or if they really don't need it, but they need something else. And it's not always, it's not a perfect science. We can ask all the right questions and still at the end of the day, we not be able to determine, to determine whether this person is really in need of our help or if by giving them money, we're enabling them in their problem. Now, I'll tell you, when we can't, when we can't determine it, we want to err on, on helping people out. We want to err on giving people what they need. But usually we don't give cash money. And I'll tell you why. Because a person who has a problem, let's say an alcohol problem or an addiction problem, Or if they have a problem managing money. Listen, you can give them money all you want to. 
They're going to be back. And they're going to be back more than once or twice or three times or four times. And so you want to help them. It's not that you want to turn anybody away. That's not what we want to do. We want to help them. But there comes the point where your help is not a help. It's a hurt. Because enabling means, it means to do for somebody else what they are perfectly capable of doing for themselves. Enabling is anytime you are doing something for somebody else that they are perfectly capable of doing for themselves. And one other thing, let me just say about enabling. Enabling robs the person you love and are trying to help. It robs that person of the consequences of their actions and their choices. That's a hard thing. Let's say that I have come to you for help, and you help me, and I come to you again for help, and again for help, and again, and you help me every time. At some point, though, when I come to you for help, rather than you giving me money or giving me transportation or giving me a place to stay or giving me food or whatever, there comes a point where, although it will be very tough for you to do, the hardest thing you've ever done in your life, there will come a time when you will need to say to me, Jimmy, I'm, I can't give you that, I can't do that, and, and you, you're not going to be able to see this, and you're probably going to be angry at me, but you're going to say, Jimmy, I can't give you that, and, it's the, and me not giving it to you is the best thing that I can do for you. Why? Because it forces me to feel hardship. You say, well, you, want, you want somebody you love to feel hardship? I really don't, but there are times when the best thing that you can do for me is to let me experience the hardship. You know why? Because hardship will motivate me to finally do something for myself to lift myself up out of the problem that I have been experiencing. It's very hard to do. And yet, it can often be the best thing. Listen, every person needs to experience the consequences of their own decisions and and to, to, to get somebody something like money or whatever like that when when it it hurts them more than helps them it robs them of the consequences it robs them of the hardship that can motivate them to get out of their problem this is not going to be on a slide i want you to hear this don't help the people you care about dig their own graves william fry is a preacher. He preached back in 2003 at the Beeson Divinity School, which is at Sanford University. He preached a sermon entitled, When Words Come to an End. And he talked about a, a, uh, an experience he had, and here's what he said. He said, when I was a younger man, I volunteered to read to a college student named John who was blind. And one day I asked him, John, how did you lose your sight? A chemical explosion, John said, when I was 13. How'd that make you feel, I asked. My life was over. I felt helpless. I hated God, John responded. For the first six months, I did nothing to improve my life. I would eat all my meals, if I ate any of them at all, in my room. One day, my father, my father entered my room and he said, John, wintertime's coming and the storm windows need to be put up. And that 
is your job. Always has been, and it's still your job now, and I want those windows hung by the time I get back home from work this evening or else. John said, then he turned, my father, walked out of the room and slammed the door. I got so angry, I thought, who does he think I am? I'm blind. I was so angry, I decided to do it. I felt my way to the garage. I found windows. I felt around until I located the necessary tools. I found the ladder. All the while, I was muttering cuss words under my breath and saying, I will show them. I'll fall, and then they'll have not only a blind son, but a paralyzed son. I'm going to show them. And then John said, I got the windows up. I got them all up. And he said, it was only later that I found out that during that whole time I was looking for tools and gathering the ladder and gathering the windows and putting those storm windows up, he said, never at any moment was my father more than four or five feet away from my side. But he said, he made me do what he knew only I could do for myself. Now, some of you are in that position with some of your family members. I don't know who all you are, but I know you're there. And you're either in that first stage where you're taking your loved one along. And, and, and there's, a, there's a time when that stage must be what you do. But there's a time, a time comes when that stage ends and you have to care for your loved one from a distance and only intervene when it's absolutely necessary. But then... There comes a time when you go to the third stage when you know that if you move physically to intervene, it's the worst thing you could possibly do. You've got to let them feel the consequences of where they've pitched their tent. Let them feel the hardship that motivates them to do something better. But you pray to God for that person because you love that person. But it takes some discernment to know the difference between helping your loved one and enabling that loved one. And quite frankly, some of us who, are the, who consider ourselves the helpers, what really is happening is we're the codependent ones. And we're as much in need of helping them, or we think we are, as we think they are in receiving our help. Do you really want to help your family member, your loved one? you really want to help them? Go to the next stage. Let's see if you can do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for commanding us. You tell us in one place that a person who doesn't care for his Household, especially his own family, is worse than an unbeliever. You said that. So you, you teach us to help our family. You teach us to help our loved ones, our friends. But God, give us discernment on the best way to help those we love so dearly. Lord, if it means that we need to bring them along with us for a while, help us to know to do that. If it means 
separating from this person, but intervening only when necessary. Help us to know that. If it means uh, caring for them from a distance, but not physically intervening, but praying for them only, help us to do that. Lord, we want to help people, not enable them, not hurt them. So help us to know. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.